Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 42. This morning as we consider uh, what some have called the fifth gospel, so rich it is in texts about the Messiah, Jesus, written 700 years before his birth. Uh, Isaiah tells us of him, and here in chapter 42 he reveals the Messiah to be God's servant and the hope of the world. And we need to know all we can about him so that we can recognize him when he comes. Imagine yourself to be a Jew before Jesus. How will I know who the Messiah is? And what would draw me to him? What would I like about him? This is what we want to consider from Isaiah this morning. Let me invite you to pay attention then to the reading of God's word. Isaiah 42, just verses 1 to 4 this morning. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together. In prayer. Our Father, this is your word about your Son, and these are your people. We pray that we would see Jesus by the work of your Spirit through this word. May it rest with power on the hearts of your people. Grab our attention. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Through Isaiah, God says, behold, my servant. Behold, look, see. What does he tell us about him? What should we see? Let me highlight four or five things and give them to you as we go. In the first place, I want you to see how necessary this servant is. Notice what he will do. End of verse 1, he will bring forth justice to the nations. End of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Verse 4, he won't stop until he has faithfully established justice in the earth. That's the recurring theme. One is needed who can bring about justice. Now, what is justice? What's it talking about? Well, justice, as we tend to think of it, is kind of a law court term fairly exclusively. But in the Bible, it's a much larger thing than that. It's a larger category. Justice, as we think of it, rights wrongs that have been done. But justice can't undo the past. The law can punish evildoers, right? And it can declare the innocent to be not guilty. But the law has no power to transform the hearts of people. It has no power to do something internally in us. Human courts may not always see the truth. Or pronounce justice properly. But even when they do. They can't do all that's needed. 
And the servant here then doesn't come simply as some kind of omnipotent lawyer to get things right in his prosecution or an omnipotent judge to settle cases or an omnipotent policeman uh, you know, to arrest the criminals. Their work on earth may bring arrest or prosecution or declarations of innocence or guilt or pronouncements of punishment, but they can't change the heart of man. They can't, they can't make those who do wrong do right from the heart. But the servant has come to take things that are deformed, things that are twisted, things that are marred, and not just punish the guilty, but to transform them into what he created us to be, what God intended us to be from the very beginning, to set things right in the world, to set us right. One way to illustrate that is to say, say you go on vacation. And while you're away, somebody breaks into your home and they uh, steal a valuable painting off your wall. Maybe it's a family heirloom. Maybe you had means to buy something expensive. And they whisk it away. And in the process of whisking it away, they, they deface it. They, they ruin it. It was irreplaceable. Well, a week later, the police come to you and they don't hit you. As I just smacked myself. They come to you and they say, we have good news. We've caught the thief. What do you reply? Well, okay. Thank you. But do you have my painting? Sir, they say, we will bring the full weight of the law against that thief. <laughs> That's fine, you might say. But I want my painting back. And they can't do that. It's been destroyed or defaced. They can't really make it right. Well, God wants his painting back, and he painted into you and me. We are the image of God on the earth, and we are marred, and we are defaced, and we are ruined by the fall. But we are not hopeless. And God doesn't just want to say, let me get the criminal thief, and let me punish him pro- properly. Let's bring about justice. That's, that's not all that's going on here. I want restoration of life as it was meant to be. I want my people to be as I intended them to be. And so when you have justice on the earth, you have life being lived as God meant. You have reconciliation between you and your Father in heaven. You have peace existing between you and other people. You have love abounding and you have, yes, no more injustice and no more evil along with no more sadness. The only one who is able to bring about that world for the whole world, Isaiah says, is God's servant. And that's the assertion of the first word, verse 1. Behold my servant. We're supposed to see this, and the way to see it is to recognize that little word, behold, has a backstory, even in the last chapter. In the six or seven verses preceding this, you see the word behold twice. It's a clue to follow the pattern of the text, the outline of the text. You see it at chapter 41, verse 24. You see it again at chapter 41, verse 29. In both those verses, if you're, if you're reading the ESV, it says, Behold, some versions look or see. Sadly, some versions just don't even translate it. View it as just an insignificant little word. But actually, it's pointing you to something. What's it pointing you to? Well, in chapter 41, it's drawing you to your attention to the idolatry 
of God's people. And the idols they place their hope in. About these idols, verse 23, the false gods that people turn to, God mocks them. Because they can't tell the future. They can't predict what's to come. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. That's speaking of the idols. Do something so that we know that you're real is the point. But verse 24, behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So in other words, behold, your idols, you're nothing. You can't accomplish anything. Verse 24, behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind, a gas bag. These idols are helpless helpers. Then God says, chapter 42, behold. And maybe you're expecting more of the same, but you get the opposite. Behold, my servant. The servant is a contrast to the idols. He will not be false. His works will not be worthless or ineffective. So chapter 42 is God's answer to the idolatry of his people explained in chapter 41. And we need him because all of us struggle with idolatry. It's not just the children of Israel. It's not just the pagan nations around the children of Israel thousands of years ago. Idolatry doesn't just mean, you know, making gold statues or silver statues and bowing down to them instead of God. Idolatry is any time we find our ultimate fulfillment, satisfaction, security, hope, treasure in someone, something, anything other than God. Idolatry is when we love anyone or anything more than we love God. It's not that we don't love other things. God properly, as the great lover, invites us to love well. Even other people were commanded to. But when we love others more than we love God, they have become an idol to us. When we love God less than we love anything else, we are idolaters and we are all, then, by nature... Idolaters and God's answer to this is what? Behold my servant. God's servant is the solution. He can do something for you that idols cannot do. He can do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. Last of verse 1, I have placed my spirit on him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will redeem us, reconcile us to God. He will transform us and put things the way they ought to be. And he's the only one who's able. He can bring you to himself and make you like himself. And you and I need that. God is committed to this for all who trust in Jesus. Years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, after an evening worship service was out on the sidewalk counseling a woman who had come by. She said she was a Christian. Uh, She said that she wanted to follow Christ, but that she wanted to be famous too. She wanted to pursue a stage career in New York City. After I have made it in the theater, I'll follow Christ completely, she said. And Barnhouse took out a key 
from his pocket, and he scratched a mark on a postal box standing on the corner. That is what God will let you do, he said. God will let you scratch the surface of success. He will get, let you get close enough to the top to know what it is, but he will never let you have it. Because he will never let one of his own children have anything rather than himself. Years later, he met the girl again. And she confessed that it had been indeed just as he had said. She had dabbled in the stage. Once her picture had been in a national magazine, but she had never really quite made it. She told Barnhouse, I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I have closed my eyes and seen you scratching on that postal box with your key. God let me scratch the edges, but he gave me nothing in place of himself. In Jesus, God gives us himself. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells In bodily form. He is God with us. And the sight of him. Draws our hearts away from idols. When you begin to see Jesus as he truly is. You can never again be satisfied. With false gods. And false paths. And false pursuits. You may be enticed by them. You may be tempted by them, you may give in, you may stumble and you may fall, but you will not be truly happy with them if they come between you and Jesus. You won't be truly happy without Jesus and you won't be finally satisfied until he makes you like himself, restoring you after his own image. He won't let you be truly satisfied. Apart from himself. He is the answer to our need. He's the answer to our idolatry. Now second. I want you to see. How delightful he is. Not just how needed. See how delightful he is. God says verse 1. Behold my servant. Whom I uphold. My chosen. In whom my soul delights. You see how ecstatic God is over Jesus. We read about this as we've been studying Matthew this fall. When we hit Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus, he comes up out of the water and the Father speaks from heaven over him. This is my son, my beloved son. This is the son of my love. With him I am what? Well pleased. My soul delights in him. And until you understand that the Father is completely pleased with his son you don't understand christianity very well you may indeed very much be a christian trusting jesus for salvation but you will struggle to have a consistent joy a consistent peace of conscience a consistent assurance of your salvation what do i mean what god has always wanted for us was for us to be his image bearers. That's why he made us, to represent him on the earth. And ever since the fall into rebellion, the image of God in us has been marred, it's been twisted, it's been defaced. And God rightly disapproves of us. God rightly is justly displeased with us as we are in ourselves. 
There has been no one whom the fa- of whom the Father can say with, with him, with her, I am completely pleased by what I see. But now the servant has come. He was promised and he came and God approves of him completely. My soul delights in him. Everything he is and does and says and feels and values and desires is perfect in his father's eyes. Finally, there is a person in whom God's soul delights. And the Bible says that all who trust in this servant, his son... For salvation, all who are united to him by faith are in union with him, we're united to him, we're covered in him, and what God thinks of his own beloved son, God thinks of you. We are acceptable to God through his son. He makes us acceptable in his beloved son. Years ago, uh, two of my kids went to Silver Dollar City with their grandkids. These are the special kids in our family that we really love. We sent them off with the grandkids. You're supposed to chuckle. My kids aren't. Sorry. Uh, but the reason being, my, the grandparents had bought Silver Dollar City season passes. And what accompanied those passes was the opportunity to bring one guest with you on particular days of the year who got in free. We couldn't send the whole flock of kids. We could only send two because there were two grandparents. The grandparents had full enjoyment of the park because they satisfied the demands of the park by the season pass. My kids, however, purchased nothing. Melinda and I purchased nothing. But Silver Dollar City let them in because on certain days of the year, if you show up one who has right of access, who fully satisfies the requirements. Well, then you get in with them and, so to speak, in biblical language, in them. Such is the gift of God to us. Anything and everything God expects of you in order for you to have a right standing with him is found only in Jesus, not in yourself. It's found in union with Jesus. Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2, having been, the Apostle Paul says, justified through faith. Justified, that means you're forgiven for all your sins and you're accounted as righteous before God. Having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have a standing in grace. We have peace with God. Not that we're hoping to have peace with God. Not that we could do something to get peace with God. We have it in Christ because Christ is our peace and he made peace. And we stand in him. He is enough. The good you have failed to do, Jesus did it. The punishment your sins deserve, Jesus received. He is enough. If we are in him, through faith in him, not by works for him, it is enough. So just turn away from your performance and trust simply in his perfection. He is well-pleasing to the Father. This is what brings peace of conscience. When you have that nagging fear that there's just one more thing you need to do for God, for God to be okay with you. You assuage that fear 
by the knowledge that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he is all you need. This is how you have assurance of God's acceptance of you. You don't need to rip petals from daisies, fretting anxiously while you mutter under your breath, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He accepts me, he accepts me not. No, no, no. Just see the servant. and Believe that the father loved you and sent his son for you. See and believe that the son loved you and gave himself up for you. See how delightful he is. And if this is how the father thinks of his son, my soul delights in him. Is this how you think of the son? Do you have that delight? Now the third thing I want you to see is how unusual he is. Verses 2 and 3. Notice it says, he, this servant, will not cry out and lift up his voice. Now, what's that about? How's, how's he going to bring justice to the nations, you know, if he doesn't ground and pound, if he doesn't mash and smash people, right? If he's not loud and boisterous and demands what he wants, right? I mean, notice his quietness, right? It's striking. He will not cry out. And lift up his voice. It's an expression, crying out, lifting up his voice, used of a thunderbolt, used of a raging bull. And the writer is saying he's not like that. He's not loud and brash. There's no screaming at you and shouting orders at you. Get with the program. He doesn't shout others down. That's not his manner. It's not like the manner of the Westboro group of protesters who seem to show up at things they don't like, like military funerals and scream at people about gays in the military or anything else, right? The Supreme Court says they have the right to do that under U.S. law, but it shows no godly love for grieving families under the law of God. The servant isn't like that. His manner of pursuing justice is never unloving to anyone. And this servant doesn't blow off about himself. He isn't self-promoting. He doesn't call and do attention to himself. He doesn't toot his own horn like some TV preachers do, right? So in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 9 to 21, this was Jesus' way. He entered the synagogue, and it says, A man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, they asked Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and he was restored, healthy like the other. Why? Jesus is merciful. Jesus is powerful. He heals him. And the Pharisees hated Jesus for it. Verse 14 says the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And Jesus, verse 15, aware of that, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This, says Matthew, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah 
And what did Isaiah say? Well, he quotes Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. This passage. And so it's a kind of rebuke to us, really, when you consider who he is. We're so into promoting ourselves in sort of the most sophisticated of ways. We ought not be. Calvin, I think, is a good example for us here, a positive example. When he died, he didn't want anyone to distinguish his burial from any other. He didn't want fawning fans gathering, you know, at his resting place to hover over the the great reformer. So at his direction, his body was sewn into a plain white shroud and put in a plain box. He didn't want a tombstone. So weeks later, when foreign students came looking for his final resting place, they couldn't find it among all the other graves likewise recently dug. Maybe you're tempted to think, I believe in Jesus. You know, if he'd get in my face like a drill sergeant, if he'd scream in my ears, I'd believe in Jesus. If, he, if he'd only make himself more popular, more attractive, more outwardly impressive, you know, if he'd have superpowers and fly like Superman, if he'd gone on the talk shows, right, and boasted of how great he is, then I'd believe in Jesus. But Isaiah says you ought to believe in him because he was promised to be humble and quiet. And that is what he was. But not only was he quiet, he's gentle. Notice how unusual his gentleness is, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. A reed here is a a kind of leaf-like tall, thin grass. It has a sturdy stem, but it can be... And and so it can be used to support other things. But of course, if it gets bruised, it will flop over and become useless in that sense. Some of us are like that. Jesus will not despise us, break us off, tear us out, or throw us away. And middle of verse 3, a faintly burning wick he won't quench, or a Uh, The wick of an oil lamp, a smoldering flax, he won't snuff out, right? So the expression goes, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, there's a great deal more smoke than fire in the lives of most of us Christians. If you've ever tried to rekindle a faintly burning fire that's almost out, you know how tenderly you've got to deal with it. How, how if you disturb it too much, if you blow on it too hard, you're going to extinguish it. Some of the Lord's people are like this. Discouraged, beaten down, lacking assurance, fearful, weak in faith, weak in hope, weak in love. And Jesus will not despise us. Jesus will not extinguish us. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So says Alec Botier, to this servant, nothing is useless. Nothing is hopeless. People are never useless to him or beyond repair. He can mend the bruised And the damaged. He can strengthen the weak and lift up the downcast. You remember how despairing Thomas, the disciple Thomas was in John 20. 
who, who wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the other disciples at the resurrection. And so uh, he, uh, he doubted the resurrection. And he said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, place my finger in the mark of the nails, place my hand in his side, I will never believe. You see how disappointed he was. Uh, he, he believes his friend and his mentor, his teacher, is dead. And you can hear kind of in running through his mind, his distrust of the other disciples as they say, no, 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 he's alive. And you can imagine, perhaps, he was thinking, well, I mean, how cruel of you to play a game like this with me? How cruel of you to tease me that our Savior is risen? I saw what happened to him. I can't believe. I, I can't do it. But eight days later, Jesus again appears to his disciples in uh, the, the locked room. And he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Obviously, Jesus had been listening to doubting Thomas when he was despairing. And he doesn't come to him sharply. He doesn't rebuke him for not listening to the testimony of these other disciples. He doesn't rebuke him for not believing Jesus when Jesus had told them he would rise from the dead. He was gentle. Come and see. And so Thomas bowed down and he said, my Lord and my God, because he saw. Now look, that didn't just happen for Thomas. That story was given for us. The story concludes in John 20, verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And such are all of you who have believed. And so I ask you, is this, is this a weak in faith? Um, bruised, battered description of the church? Are you a crushed reed? A flickering wick, you're safe in this gentle giant's hands. You may have heartaches other people don't know about. You may bring all kinds of baggage with you in coming to faith in Jesus that you think has just made you useless to him. But you are safe in Jesus' hands. And so then I would say, Ought we not also be like Jesus to one another? You remember the name Chuck Colson? Some of you, of course, were around when Chuck Colson was prominent as uh, the head of prison fellowship, the international ministry to prisoners. But some of you remember that prior to that, Colson had been President Nixon's hatchet man. He had been his fixer so to speak, right? He was tough and he did what needed to be done. He fired people. He pressured people. He threatened people. He lied to people. He was eventually arrested and imprisoned for his part in the Watergate scandal. But he was also converted. He, he, between his arrest 
and going to prison, a faithful friend uh, brought to him the gospel of grace. And he was converted and he believed in Jesus and so he went on to start prison fellowship, reaching thousands for Christ as it still does, though Colson is with the Lord now. But he said this, instead of Christians being pro-life and standing outside abortion clinics yelling at people, why not set up a table, serve coffee, and talk to people? You see what he's getting at? Not because we approve of their conduct, but to win them, persuade them with grace and truth and love. Quiet and gentle, like Jesus. How often, as a parent, I, I completely fail at this. I, I think if I just speak louder, more rapidly, with a greater bark, I'll get a better response. If I just uh, treat them a little more roughly, they'll get it. And uh, it's true that you can berate somebody into action, at least for a little while, though you don't win their affection and you don't hold their respect for the long haul when you treat them that way. Jesus doesn't treat you that way. He doesn't despise you for your weakness. He doesn't mock you for your fears or crush you in your despair. So shouldn't Redeemer then be for the weak, for the fringe, for worn out Christians, for beat up and fed up pagans? Shouldn't all Christian ministries, not just for the healthy and the strong and the mature and leaders and future leaders, right? But for the spiritually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Because Jesus is a savior for such as these. He's so unusual in his quietness and gentleness. But notice one last thing. Notice how successful he is. Verse 4. He will not grow faint. Or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. His candle will not dim. His will will not give out. He will not be bruised, actually is the word, translated discouraged. That's, I think, its meaning here. Though he is battered like others, those blows don't deter him. He will experience things that will crush and quench but he will still succeed why is he able verse 1 he's chosen by God he's upheld meaning gripped fast by God he's enabled by the spirit of God nothing can stop him and his perseverance guarantees our preservation he will not fall down on the job. He will not give up before it's over. That is absolutely freeing. The weight of the kingdom is on his shoulders. The progress of the kingdom is on him. As we've said before, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the cross and all its humiliation and all its torment will not keep him from doing what needs to be done. So whatever it is you're dealing with can't stop him either. Does that mean you and I just sit back and do nothing? No, he delights in his work of ministry to make use of all of us in the body of Christ. But it is on him to accomplish the task when we are weary and ready to give up. He is never discouraged. I am the true vine, Jesus says. Abide in me, and I in you, 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He will bear fruit throughout the earth. Under his reign, his people will dwell securely. In his final coming, all wrongs will be set right. And things will be as they ought to be. There is a sense of certainty here about that. He won't give up until he establishes justice in the earth. His certainty ought to infect your faith. He is better than the idols. He restores fallen image bearers. And he does it because he's delightful to the Father. He does it in a quiet and gentle way with sinners. And he is always successful. If you have him... What else? Who else could you ever want? Let's pray. Father, thank you for him. Grant us to rest in him, to be satisfied with him, to find our joy in belonging to him. In his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.